God, we are, we are in your presence. This is, this is your time and this is your space. And you have invited us here and drawn us here. And we come from very different experiences. Each of us have had our own kinds of weeks and days recently. And some of us are coming from places where we can smile easily. And uh, we would tell one another that we're in a good place and others have had uh, a lot of stress and anxiety this week and, and maybe struggle and pain. And so, God, you alone have this ability to pull people from very different places and experiences and unite us together uh, and then work in us. And so, as we turn our attention to you, um, would you, would you meet us? Would you speak to us? Would we get a bigger vision of of how good you are, of how righteous you are, of how powerful you are, of how loving you are. And Holy Spirit, we need you to be active and working in order for that to happen. And so as we've already sung of, of fire working in our lives, would you be that fire for us? Would you unify us? Would you uh, refine us? Would you reveal to us where it is that you want us to grow and change? Uh, as we sung earlier, that you would burn away all the lies that we bring in and recount to ourselves, would those disappear and be far from us? And would your truth remain? Would we hear from you this morning, Holy Spirit? And Jesus, we are here because of you and we need you. We declare you as our savior, as our king, as our teacher and as our leader. And so would you speak to us as we look to your words in scripture this morning. It's in your name that we pray, amen. We've been in this series that we've uh, called We Are a People Who, and we've been trying to fill in this blank. And if you've not been with us, let me do kind of just a real quick catch up. Um, we started, uh, I don't know, six, seven weeks ago with this, this, idea, uh, um, this reality that we, our brains work really fast. And whether we like it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, our brain is always trying to fill in that blank. Uh, of who we are, who am I, what's my identity? We're always trying to fill in the blank of who are my people and how do we behave? And the reality is, is that we actually get a vision for who we are and how we live by the people that we're around, by those that we allow to influence us, uh, by the relationships that we have, who we're loved by. Um, those around us actually shape that. And so we, we fill in this blank with a lot of different things. Some of them are really good. Others of them are really different than what Jesus would call us to or lead us to or what we find in his word. And so what we've been trying to do is look to Jesus and look to things that he said, taught, and modeled to fill in this blank. And so what we've done is we've started with, the first thing is we want to be a people who love, obey, and imitate Jesus. We want to be a people who practice grace with ourselves and with others. We want to be a people who see God for all of who he is, not just how we sometimes define him or bring him down into our space and our level. We want to be a people who, are, who bounce back, who are resilient. And we want to be a people who seek and share joy. So those are a number of that we've already hit. Today we've got one that um, I think is probably, not I think, I'm pretty convinced of and believe um, that, it's, that it's the most challenging. Um, I think we're going to put something in this blank today that are from the mouth of Jesus, that Jesus said and he modeled it and he taught it and he lived it out. Uh, but we're going to put something in that blank today that is, is maybe, if I could use this word, aspirational. 
So we've done a number of them, and maybe some of those you think, like, I, I do that a little bit. I love Jesus. I obey Jesus. I imitate Jesus. I seek to, to share joy with those around me, or I've practiced grace, or I think I'm resilient, as we talked about last week. And so maybe some of these have been, we've we kind of actualized them. We've, we've lived them out. We've filled in that blank and said, yeah, that's been part of my life to some degree or another. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess that the one we're going to look at today is, is kind of aspirational, that it's way out there, and it's something that we've got we've to grow into. Uh, maybe we could say it this way. We actually have to be transformed. We have to be changed. Our very character has to change. Who we are needs to change and grow in order to live this one out for today. It's, it's a ways off. It's aspirational. It's also, I think, the, uh, the greatest sign of Christ-like character. The greatest sign of Christ-like character is if we can do this thing that we're going to fill in the blank with today. You ready for it? Let's love our enemies. We are a people who love our enemies. I'm not going to ask us to raise our hands, but um, what if? What if that's how we were known? What if, what if that was how, how people reflected you back to you? Hey, I encounter you. I experience you as a person who who loves your enemies well. Um, as we say this, as we hear this, love our enemies, um, it's not a new phrase. We've all heard it. It's actually a fairly common quote, whether somebody believes in Jesus and knows the Bible or whether they have no idea who Jesus is. It's, it's just out there that the idea of loving our enemies is kind of this radical, crazy, um, kind of preposterous idea or ideal that we want to live into. And when we say that, something happens, um, our minds flash um, an idea, a face, a name. We feel something maybe in our chest of like, I, I know who my enemy is and I, I can feel what it's like to be around them or be the recipient of their discouragement or hate or how they've interacted with me, how they've treated me. Maybe it's a, it's a people group. It's not even one particular name or person. It's a type of person is your enemy. When we hear the word enemy, we have all sorts of different things that flash through our minds. And when we hear Jesus' words, as we'll hear today, of the, not just the invitation, but the deep challenge to love our enemies, some of us might feel a little bit excited about how, hey, how can we go after this and try this? And others of us go, in no way am I interested in that. In fact, you maybe have already started looking at your phone and you've moved on. Here's what I want us to do together this morning. I want us to first look at, at where we see this. Where do we get this language from, this idea from of love your enemies? Where do we find that from Jesus? And then secondly, I want to make sure just we understand who, who is our enemy. Now, how do we define that? How does Jesus define that, that for us? And then third, I want us to start, and by start I mean like put a toe into the water or into the whole process of transformation of becoming a person who could actually love an enemy. So where does it come from? Who's an enemy? And, and how do we even consider, think about maybe possibly starting down that, that process? If you've got a Bible, if you'd find your way to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to pick up at verse 43. It's Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Chapter 5 is right after chapter 4. And then we're going to move down and start with, with verse 43. Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you're not familiar with this, I've said it a, a ton of times, but I think these three chapters, known as the Sermon on the Mount, are the most radical teaching for humanity that's ever happened throughout all of existence. Jesus 
sat on a hill and taught to a whole bunch of people. And it's recorded in Matthew. It's recorded in a couple of the other gospels as well. But it's, the, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And it's this, this transformative, radical teaching of how Jesus saw humanity could be. And what he's doing, Jesus is teaching, and he's, he's calling people to this very, very, very different kind of life of being a completely different kind of person. And what Jesus is doing is he's trying to bring more of his life into our world. And as he was doing in the first century with those people that were listening to him, and he's like, there's a different way of living. And ultimately what he was saying was like, in this, in this time, in this place, both then and now, 2,000 years later, there's a way for you and I, for human beings, to live that's it's actually as if we're from a different world that we actually live and behave, that we talk, feel, treat, our attitudes, our actions, are like we're from a different world. It's like we're alien. It's like we're, we're different. We're distinct. We're not like everybody else. Jesus is saying, you can be this kind of person, but it's, it's not like this world. It's like a different world. And what he's saying is he's saying he wants to bring more of his world, heaven, and bring it into this world. He talks about the kingdom over and over and over again. And it's a kind of transformation that happens in individuals one by one over the course of their life that allows them to be a person of the kingdom. Another way to say that is a person of the king. We become more like Jesus. And so Jesus is walking through this. And there's people that are just like bewildered. Like they're listening to him and going like, I don't even understand what he's saying. I don't even know how that could be possible. And so he starts in chapter five, about midway through chapter five, he moves into these six statements where he says, you've heard that it was said this, but I'm going to change it up and direct you to to consider this and to live in this way. And he does six of those, and this is the last one. And he says this in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so when he says, you've heard that it was said, what he's saying is that, I mean, you live here um, in uh, first century uh, Israel. It's ruled over by the Romans. And um, you uh, follow your culture as, as Israelites, as Jewish people. And you've got teachers and religious leaders. And you've got rabbis who are teaching you and shape everything about how you understand world life, culture, day-to-day living, all of it. And so as you've grown up in this setting, you've heard that it was said as these teachers and rabbis guide you and instruct you. And they're looking to the Old Testament. And again, for them, it wouldn't have been the Old Testament because there wasn't a New Testament yet. They're literally living out the New Testament right now. So it wasn't old, it was just the Testament. And so Jesus is saying, you've heard these rabbis teach the Testament or the scriptures. And what what they've told you is this. They've recounted that as love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've been told. Now, when he says that, if you look, if in some of your Bibles, you might have this, um, right in my Bible, right after the word neighbor is a really little small um, letter. In my Bible, it's an, it's an H. It's like, a, um, it's like a footnote. And if you look down at the bottom, um, in some of your Bibles, not all of you have this, or if it's on your phone, I don't know if you've got access to it, but it could, it could scroll down at, at the very bottom and it says, that H at the footnote at the bottom says Leviticus 19.18. Now, Again, Jesus has just said, had this. You've heard that it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And in our Bibles, midway through that sentence, after neighbor, there's a, there's a note. And so it's a note for this, love your neighbors. And it comes from Leviticus 19.18. So let's look at that book that we're all so familiar with, Leviticus uh, 19.18. It says this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people but love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. So Jesus is 
is referencing and is aware of what the teachers and the, the religious leaders, the rabbis, have been telling the people. And so they've been telling the people, hey, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is from the Testament, the scriptures. So Jesus is saying, here's what you've heard. And it comes from Leviticus. And in Leviticus, we see that it says, don't, don't seek revenge. Don't get back when somebody does something wrong to you. Don't get back to them or, or, or hold a grudge, but do something kind of the opposite of that, which is, which is love your neighbor. So when your neighbor does something to you, so when person in your, in your people, and it says that um, anyone, a bear a grudge against anyone among your people, which it, that's actually talking about their nation, their ethnic group, the Israelites, the Jewish people, don't retaliate, but, but love them. They're your neighbor, they're your people. That's not a stretch, like, okay, I, I should love my, my people. Okay, I, I kind of get that. Um, when he says don't retaliate, don't, don't seek revenge, um, this is actually what's coming. Jesus has just finished saying this. When we pick up where we picked up in verse 43, he has just finished saying uh, these, these verses in, uh, right, right above there. It says, you have heard that it was, in verse 38, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Maybe you've heard this before. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus has just got done saying, hey, don't, don't do this eye for an eye thing. Um, and, and he's referring back to, again, Leviticus, where he says, hey, don't, don't, seek, don't seek revenge. What's, what's really normal is when something is done wrong to you, to get back at them. Um, when the people of God were being formed um, prior to um, God giving them the book of Leviticus, what would happen, and this isn't, this isn't hard to imagine because we've done this, um, you've done this to a sibling growing up, you've maybe done it to a neighbor and not ever told anyone, but when somebody has done you wrong, you've gotten back, right? And you were very careful and measured to get back completely equal, right? No. Like when something was done wrong to you, you, you got back, but you did it in the moment. You did it over a long time when you planned it. Maybe it was an emotional reaction or maybe it was a long time look, taking, but you got back and you got them so much better than they got you. Um, if, if you've ever had kids and not just a single child, but multiple kids, you've, you've dealt with that retaliation back and forth and it escalates. And what happens is prior to Leviticus and even after it was written was that people were just annihilating one another. And so if you did something wrong to me, whether accident or not, I would come back and get you twice as much and then you would get me four times as much. And, I would, and so God is injecting actually a grace into how to be a people that more reflect him instead of the world around them. And says, hey, just keep it equal. An eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. And then Jesus comes, he says, I'm gonna do even further than that. We've, we've, we've quashed the annihilation a little bit and made it equal. And now we're gonna move forward and be a different kind of people. And so if somebody slaps you, if somebody does you wrong and slaps, and the, the description there is a, is a backhand, which is humiliating. And so in that culture at that time, if somebody backhanded you, they were saying, you're less than me, and I don't care about you, and I'm gonna humiliate you, so I'm gonna backhand you. I'm not even gonna treat you as an equal. And Jesus says, hey, if that ever happens to you, 
what do you do? And you're like, I know exactly what I'm gonna do because I've been training in MMA and I'm gonna take this person out in like less than two seconds and break their shoulder. Like I know what to do, like I can do. And Jesus says, no, don't break their shoulder. Turn to them the other cheek. And you're like, dang it, Jesus. But what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, if you, if you turn the other cheek and you've just been backhanded, what do they have to do? They have to, they have to come back like this and slap you open palm. That's an entirely different thing. If I'm gonna backhand you, I'm gonna humiliate you and let everybody know that you are beneath me. But if I'm gonna slap you across the face this way, it, I'm gonna have to look you in the eye. We're gonna be as equals now and everybody is gonna see, including me as the slapper, as the person who says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this and we're gonna be equal, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to do it. That's an entirely different thing. If somebody sues you and takes your shirt, you must have a really awesome shirt. Like, why that would happen, I don't know. But Jesus paints this picture of, of somebody who's clearly got some kind of power in the system over them that they could take them to court and take their shirt. Now, Jesus says, if that happens to you, don't resist the evil person, but give them your coat as well. And in case you don't know what that looks like, let's paint an uncomfortable picture here. You're in court and somebody sues you for your shirt and you have to give that up and they get your shirt. And Jesus is saying, now take the only other thing you're wearing, take that off and give it to them as well. And what that creates in, in, the, in the courtroom, which is probably being broadcast live for sure, is a naked person standing there with somebody who has abused the system and the power to take something from them. And so now everybody has to see the shame that this person is putting on that person because they're standing there naked. Jesus says, don't resist them, actually give it to them. You've known in your history, in your past, that you get equal, that you get back at, that you maybe even get one up on. But I am saying, do something entirely different. Don't resist them, in fact, let your shame be open so they can see what they're actually doing to you. And then he says, if a, the scenario would have been for the third one is a Roman um, centurion or guard, a Roman guy in the army would have picked a Jew and this was legal, they could do this. They could say, hey, you know, get up off your lunch break, carry my equipment, carry my armor, carry whatever, carry my stuff for this next mile. And they legally could do that. But the legal parameters said, you cannot have a Jew carry more than a mile. You can have them carry whatever you tell them to carry for a mile, but beyond that, it's illegal. And so Jesus says, don't just do what they are rightfully because they've, they're in power, they're physically stronger and bigger, and they've got this political power over you, and they've put this law in place where they can require you to go one mile, but do something beyond that. Say, no, 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 bro, I got it. I'll carry it another mile. I'll go a second mile. Now, you've got some Roman soldiers that are like, sweet. Others are like, oh shoot, what do I do? If I get caught with them going mile two, I'm in trouble because I've broken the law. And then they have to wrestle through, what, did, what am I doing to this person? And why would this person offer to carry it another mile? What would happen if I did this? And is this okay? What would possess them to actually do this twice when I'm just trying to exert my advantage over them? Jesus is saying, don't resist the evil person, but live this bizarre, crazy, different kind of life where you actually give to them when they're already taking from you. Jesus is saying all this because he's saying who your neighbor is is different than you think. 
And we have one in, in, in Leviticus 19, 18 that says it's your people. But he says it's not just your people. And we know this too, right? Because when somebody said, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, oh, it's the very people you don't think are your neighbor. Not only it's not just the very people you don't think are your neighbor, it's the people that are different than you. It's the people that are opposed to you. It's the people that are against you. It's the Samaritan. We have the whole story of the good Samaritan. The one person I thought would not help a Jew helped a Jew. And Jesus, or in Leviticus, we have later on in that chapter, verse 33 and 34, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Jesus is pointing back to verses in Leviticus of all places that begins to give a different vision that stretches their vision of who their neighbor is and who they are to love, the very people that are different than, that are opposed to them, that might actually take advantage of them. Jesus is saying, love, love even them. The next verse is when he, in, the next verse he introduces the idea of love your enemy, which is the undoing of the misteaching, the incorrect teaching that the rabbis are doing when they say, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy, which makes sense. Like that will sell. Hey, hate your enemy. Here's the people that we're to hate. So love your neighbor, love one another, love the Jewish people, the Israelites, but hate the people that are, that, that, like, that like fits. I get that. I can understand that. Jesus comes and says, no, 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 no. They've got it wrong. That's not what Leviticus says. That's not what the Testament says. That's not what the scriptures say. He says, I'm calling you in verse 44, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The very people that you think are opposed to you, that are against you, that hate you, that you hate, that you just, you wake up and it just seems natural and easy to be against them, to root for their demise, to think bad thoughts of them, to play out scenarios in your mind that may, may never take place, but that just make you feel good. Fuel that, that makes sense. And Jesus says, no, 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 we're going to undo all of that. I'm going to invite you into a different kind of kingdom. I'm going to invite you in a different kind of life. I'm going to invite you to be a different kind of person, and I'm going to help you, and I'm going to walk with you. But you're going to be transformed, and your very character is going to be reshaped so that you don't just love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but you love your enemies. You love everyone even when they're your enemy. He says this next in verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, that you might be a child of God. I, uh, we need to be careful with how we receive this sentence, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because it, it sounds like if you're able to love your enemies, you've made it and you're a child of God. That's, that's kind of what it sounds like, right? I, uh, I don't remember what we were coming from, but my, my whole family, which is my mom and dad and my sister and I, were leaving something when I was in, I think I was in elementary school, I don't know, third, fourth grade, maybe, I don't quite remember. But it was at night and we were on our way home and I remember hearing my, my mom say to my dad, hey, we need to stop at the grocery store for this and that. And I remember thinking, I just wanna get home, I don't know what, 
what I thought I needed to get home for, I'd play Legos or watch A-Team, something. Like, I just wanted to get home, and it's dark out, and they said, hey, that's, we gotta stop at the store. So we pull into the grocery store, and my mom looks at me in the back seat and says, hey, will you run in with me so it's faster? And I was like, hey, I'm a fast guy. I would love to help out with that. So I run, run, run into the store with her, and she says, okay, you go get this, I'm gonna get this, go, we'll meet back right here, right, right in front of all the registers. And so I think it was milk, I'm not quite sure. I knew where the milk was, I took off down and I decided I'm gonna be so fast and we're gonna get home and I'm gonna to get to A-Team right on time. And so I, I ran down the thing, I got the milk, I came back right to the spot where she said, and I was like, we're ready to go. Uh, that's gotta be like record time. And I look around and she's not there. I was like, that's, that's weird. Where is she? Like she knows this place better than I do, how is she not here yet? So I, I waited and then I actually started to get a, a little uncomfortable. Like, where's, where's my mom? Is she okay? Am I okay? Is somebody going to pick me up and run away with me? I don't know. You know, like these thoughts started running through my head. And so I, I went down another aisle back to where the milk was and didn't see her. And so I came back another aisle and I was like, came back, okay, she's going to be here by now. And she's not there. I actually really started to get, get worried, which I know that doesn't make me sound like a very tough third grader, but I was like, I was uncomfortable. I was, I was scared. I ran back again and come back. On my way back the third time, I see her down another aisle. I go, okay, good, I run up to her. At this time, I've moved from not just being scared, but I've moved, and I, and I didn't understand all of this at this time, and maybe I don't even now at this age, but somehow I moved from scared to angry at my mom for not being where she said she would be. And I see her in the aisle, stopped and talking to somebody, and I walk up to her, and I said, Where the hell have you been? I was debating on whether to say heck or hell, but I literally said hell in that moment. And I know I started this series with sharing the first time I said the F word, but I just want you to know, I did not have a dirty mouth when I was in elementary school. Like this was way out of character for me. I was angry at my mom and I said, where the hell have you been? My mom looks at me looks back at the woman she's talking to and she says, we'll see you later, goodbye. Looks at me and says, let's go. And I actually was like mentally struggling with, I really told her, am I gonna live through the night? Like I, those, are the, those are the things that are going through my mind. I took a deep breath, I stood in the line next to her, we go through, we go through, we pay for the items. We get out to the car, I get in my seat, sit down, still struggling, which is it gonna be? She gets in the car, turns to my dad and said, um, you're not gonna believe what your son said. And he goes, okay. We drive home, nothing else is said. Um, we park in the driveway. My dad says, why don't you go to your room? Great idea, dad. I go to my room, he comes in and he says, after talking to my mom, uh, and he sits down on the bed next to me, and he said, Mom told me what you said to her. I said, yeah. You gave her a good talking to, right? Like, you know the whole scenario. She wasn't there where she said she would be. She's off talking to somebody, and da-da-da-da. And um, no, I didn't say that. And he goes, Mom told me what you said. Um, she was talking to so-and-so from church. Awesome. It's getting better. I said, oh, yeah, I kind of recognized her, okay. He said, um, that is not how you speak to 
Who? My wife. I lost my mom. Like she became his wife all of a sudden. That is not how you speak to my wife. That is not how we talk to one another. And that's, how, that's not how my children behave at home or in public. It's okay. Um, at this point, I'm shaking, sweating. I got some really, really, really good appropriate consequences. So much so that however many years later, 30, 40 years, 40 years later, I can recount that story like it was yesterday. I had consequences for the next number of weeks because of that. What I did not have was an angry father. He not once raged, he didn't raise his voice, he didn't speak quickly, he didn't lay a hand on me out of anger. He calmly sat there and said, this is not how you behave, this is not how we behave, this is not appropriate, and talked all through it, and then I suffered the consequences that I had certainly earned and that were appropriate. And what that did for me was it reinforced, that's not okay, which I already knew. Like if I could have just written a confession and been done with it, I would have written all that out. At no point in that evening, not when I was running to get the milk, not when I was cursing at my mom and embarrassing her and myself and my family, and not when I was sitting on the bed next to my dad, not at any point during that evening or in the two weeks after it, did I cease to be an Osborne? Did I cease to be a child of that family? My place in the family was never once threatened or at risk. It never even entered my mind that I would have to go live with a new family. It did for just a split second of, do I get to call her mom anymore? When Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be a child of your Father in heaven, he's not saying, behave well enough so that you can earn your way into the family of God. He's saying, this is who we are as the family of God. Now, you might not have known that when you entered in, that you were gonna be called to love your enemies and how to even do that, but this is who we are. We're a different kind of people. And so when you do that, what you're actually doing is not earning your way in, you're demonstrating that you're part of the family. And when you fail to do this, all you're doing is missing an opportunity to demonstrate that you're part of the family. You're not out of the family, you're still in. That you may, be, may know, that others may know that you're a child of the king, that you're part of God's family. And then he goes on and he says, as he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, both people, everybody gets the same reign and the same son, the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And he's not saying, all he's saying there is the pagans, those that aren't Jewish people that don't know um, the God of heaven and earth. They don't know Yahweh. Other people, don't they do that? Doesn't everybody just do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And again here, just to be careful with that last phrase, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Some of you that... Maybe on the Enneagram you're a three or maybe you just have a high achiever gear and you're like, that's a great goal. Thank you. I'm glad that's in scripture because I'm on my way to being perfect. I'm working and I've, I've weeded out some imperfections and I, if I just have the score sheet and I know what to aim for, I can move up that and I can be perfect. What he's saying here is that perfect means the same thing as complete 
or fulfilled. Like a, a, a perfect goal is a, a fulfilled goal. You see, there's, there's a goal out there. And it's not perfection or not perfection. It's, it, he's saying is there's a kind of love that God demonstrates. And even as we say that there's a kind of love that God demonstrates, we just instinctively know that's, that's more and better love than what I have. God's love is perfect. My love is not. My love is still finding itself. It's still growing and forming. But God's love, oh, that, if I could be like that, what would that be like? And if you could be like that, and if you could be like that, what would that be like if we had more of God's love? Be perfect means aspire to have the kind of love that God has that's demonstrated in Jesus that is for all of our neighbors, even when there are enemies. That's what the call there is. Who, who, who is my enemy? Who is your enemy? Who is our enemy? We see it there. The first one is the ones who persecute you. If somebody persecutes you, they're being your enemy. Uh, Jesus demonstrated how to love an enemy so well when he was being put on trial and beaten and then put on the cross, and he actually said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Those that were actively harming him, they were pursuing him to harm him. Jesus said, hey, forgive them. Jesus extended kindness and love to them. When somebody is trying to persecute you, and that, just, that doesn't mean just like religious or spiritual per persecution, but just when somebody is after you to cause you harm, like that's an enemy. The, the other descriptions that, we have, descriptions that we have is somebody who is evil or unrighteous. Jesus gives us those. When, when somebody is evil and they're, um, or they're unrighteous, what they're doing is they're opposed, in Jesus' terms, they're opposed to God. But he's also using those terms in, in opposed to you and I. When they're against what you're for, when you're for God and you're seeking to follow God and somebody is unrighteous, they're actually opposed to the very things that you're for. They're against you. They're evil. They're unrighteous. A last description I think is really helpful is anyone who hates you at the moment, like they're an, they're an enemy. If somebody hates you, they're an enemy. But he, here's what this does. Like, can we just, let's, let's be honest about this. Um, when, we did, when, we def, when we picture somebody as an enemy in our mind, um, we actually have to include in that picture somebody who is also very much not our enemy. Because when somebody hates us, that might be a, a, a person that we know and are aware of that's hated us all our life, or we just know that kind of person, that type of person is just going to be against us. But then if we can be honest, there's people that we're in deep relationship with that end up hating us in a moment. Uh, you know, I've, I heard from a friend that, that their spouse has said that they hate them before in the heat of a moment. I mean, a friend told me that. Ask a married person if that's ever happened. Have you ever, you've been married five years. You've been married 35 years. Have you ever said that you hate each other? My friend told me that that happens. She sleeps next to me every night too, but like that's happened. And I hope I'm not the only one. I think that that, like we do that in the moment at times. There is a moment where things happen and snap and we actually become an enemy of people that we are convinced and know deep in our bones that we love. But in that moment, we're not loving them. 
And so an enemy is not just somebody far away who's very different than us and opposed to us and who knows, might kill us if given the opportunity. An enemy is also the person that we're the closest to and that we share life with. But in a moment, they can become an enemy. And so when Jesus is saying here, love your enemies, it's this challenge of both the person far away and the person close. How do we actually learn to love somebody when we have defined them as an enemy? And so there, if you could think about it this way, there are both external descriptions of who an enemy is, and then there's our internal understanding of who an enemy is. You and I, in our own being, in our own mind, in our own heart, in our very brain, we've decided that person's an enemy at that moment. And some of them we've kept in that category our whole life, and others, we move into that category, and then we do work to repair what's been broken, and then we move them out of enemy category and bring them back to friend or spouse or loved one or whatever it might be. But when Jesus is saying, love your enemies, what he's talking about is being transformed in our character, deep within our heart and our mind, that when we encounter an enemy, that we can spontaneously love them. It's the reason we started this series with my silly stories of the first time I punched somebody and the first time I used the F word. Because those came out of me spontaneously, I didn't have time to think about them. I acted before I even thought. And the reason that that happened is because that had become part of me, because of the people I've been hanging out with, because of the things that I have been watching and listening to. And even as a kid, those begin to form me. And so that when in the moment, my spontaneous reaction was actually one that I didn't want to have. And Jesus is inviting us all through the Sermon on the Mount, but when it comes to loving our enemies, that we become people that's just who we are. In the spontaneous moment, we can respond to love to somebody that we've identified as an enemy. And the truth is, is that most of us, if not every single one of us, that is an aspirational goal that feels very far away. And so let's just talk a little bit about how we begin to dip a toe in or just start or think about starting the process of loving our enemy. And I wanna just rattle off five quick things and, and leave you with these. The first one is this, that we see each person as an individual, that we see each person as an individual. We live in a world, and we know this, we live this, we breathe this every day. We live in a world and a culture and media and every screen that we turn on and look to is trying to tell us, train us, and educate us that we are a part of a group. And there are all sorts of different kinds of groups. Ethnicity is probably one of the top one or two. It's ethnicity and sexuality, gender, take your pick. Those two things, the world is trying to tell us that that is who we are, of my ethnicity, my gender, my sexual preference, whatever that might be. The next one down might be my education level or income level. But we're, we're constantly bombarded with this idea, this lure that says, identify as this. And so what happens is we get caught up in seeing the world that way. The invitation from Jesus is to see each person as an individual. The reason that that is is because that is actually how God sees us. God does not see you based on your ethnicity. He doesn't see you based on your sexuality. He sees those things, but that is not how he identifies you. He identifies you by name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what you felt last night and this morning. He knows your deepest pain and your greatest joy. He knows you. And so he sees you as you, not as some blanket identity piece 
that the world has invited you into to embrace that might feel good for a day, a week, a year, or a stint at college, but then wears off and it doesn't fulfill you. God offers something completely different. And so if we're going to love our enemies, would we see them as God sees them? I love this quote by Jim Wilder. He says this, I believe learning to love enemies is the key feature of all Christian discipleship and spiritual formation, which is a giant statement. At its core, we are learning to see others the way Jesus sees them and respond accordingly. That we would see people as individuals, that we would begin to humanize them and not put them in a category where we can treat them all the same, but to see them as an individual. And the second thing is this, that we would be curious. That we would see an enemy, that we would feel an enemy. And instead of strategizing and of how just to protect ourselves or to harm them, that, our, that we would begin to go, I wonder what life is like for them. I wonder why they dress like that. I wonder why they speak like that. I wonder why they have that bumper sticker. I wonder why they just said that to me. I wonder what their week is like. I wonder if they're really happy or really struggling. To be curious about another person, to see them as an individual and then to be curious about, begins to help us care about them. The third thing is this. For some, we need to forgive. We have this call as a follower of Jesus, as we've been forgiven, as I've been forgiven by Jesus, would I be willing to forgive somebody even before they ask for it? That I would be willing to go down that road and go, I, I, I want to forgive you. Maybe we don't even communicate it to them. Maybe we do but that we will be willing to forgive. The fourth is consider an act of kindness. And so as I think about this and as I know that not only is loving an enemy a way to think and feel about them, to have a particular attitude or orientation towards them, but it's actually to act, that love includes action. And it might be as simple and as plain and as mundane as holding the door open of pressing on the brake and letting them cut in front, of smiling rather than averting our eyes or glaring or looking tough. Simple acts, behavior, action of kindness is a way to begin to love somebody who is opposed to us or hates us, who is our enemy. And the final one is this, is Jesus says this to pray for those who persecute you. Maybe you can't even manage any of those yet, but what you can do is you can just stop and pray. I'm going to pray for this person. I'm just going to pray for them. God, I don't even know what to pray for them right now. God, would you help them? They need so much help. They're my enemy. They don't like me. Fix them. I mean, I mean, you can start pretty raw, but just to start to pray for them. You're talking to their creator about them begins to change the way that you think and feel about them and moves us toward the aspiration of loving our enemy. Before we come to the table, I want to say one last thing. It's mid-February. It's February 18th right now. We have what? We have an election coming up. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I know a number of you are in denial about this and are going to try to go hibernate for a year and come back and see how it goes. We are entering into a season we are in a season of divisiveness, if you didn't know that. We're entering into a season of heightened divisiveness. If we're gonna follow Jesus 
and be, a, be a, like a community that follows Jesus through a season where everything around us is divided. We're gonna have to be willing to, to dip our toe into a journey of learning how to love our neighbor, how to love our enemy, not just our neighbor, but when our neighbor is our enemy. And you and I will have neighbors who are enemies. There's probably gonna be two and maybe another half or maybe a whole third candidate running. And our city is going to splinter. Well, maybe not splinter. Our, Our city will vote one way and then the suburbs and the rural part of our couple states here will vote another way. But we'll be divided and the tensions will rise. And we'll have friends that shock us with how they're thinking about a thing like an election. And then somebody that we thought was close all of a sudden begins to feel like an enemy. What if we were on this journey together already of figuring out how to love our enemies and we treated people who are voting very different than us in a way that, that sparks a question in their mind of why are they so different? It's like they're living in a different world. Yes, we're living in a different world and we want more of that kingdom to come into this kingdom, into this world. And so we're doing things like not resisting those that are evil, but seeking to love them, to giving away, to be willing to, to stand in embarrassment and shame of being completely different and saying, there's a reason that I'm treating you different. There's a reason I can interact with you. There's a reason I can stay close with you and us think totally different on this. We are headed into a season of divisiveness. And what would it look like for us, not, not just to be unified as a body, but to be the kind of people that live completely distinctly and are able to love even those who are against us, opposed to us, our enemies. And we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation or hear this if we didn't have the God of the universe who loved us when we were his enemy. We were opposed to him and yet he sent Jesus. And so as we come together this morning, as we come to this table and take the juice that represents Jesus' body, his bloodshed and the the cracker representing his his body broken for us. We come remember we have an example that we're following behind. We don't have to blaze the trail by ourselves. Jesus modeled and demonstrated it for us. And so Jesus, we come to this table. We come to your table taking this cup of juice and this cracker because you went to the cross and gave your body and blood for us. That while we were still sinners, as we were still opposed to you, as we were still enemies against you, you took a step towards us and laid down your life. And would we receive that today? Forgiveness for our own sin, grace into salvation, that we would be shaped, reshaped, transformed 